Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. One of the lesser understood and underserved aspects of our health system is the nature of mental health care within the African-American community. The statistics have indicated that the suicide rate among African-Americans has skyrocketed. Several weeks ago, we spoke to Donna Barnes about the rise in suicides in this group. Tonight, we have her back. She is the director of the Suicide Prevention Program through the Department of Psychiatry at Howard University, and she is also the executive director of the National Organization of People of Color Against Suicide. For your information, that website is www.nopcas.org. That's nopcas.org. Also joining us is Dr. Sherry Mollick from the Department of Psychology at George Washington University and Dr. William Lawson, who is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Howard University. All three of our guests have worked with the issues of suicide in the African-American community. Thank you all for being here. We are going to take a look at the nature and form of psychiatric treatment for African-Americans and how that plays out with the increase of suicidal behavior among blacks. So let's begin with Dr. Lawson. Treatment usually requires a sense of cause. What is the understanding of the dynamics that seems to be fueling this rise in suicides? Well, I think part of it is that there's often too much uh, neglect, when, especially when young men are depressed under stress in, in this modern day and time. Uh, there's a lot of cultural factors that keep folks from seeking help. It's often better for folks to feel that they're being bad rather than mad. And all of these contribute to an unwillingness many times to seek treatment when treatment is needed. And also a turning to uh, self-treatment, the use of drugs and uh, alcohol and other products, which um, actually add to the suicide risk. Is it a different situation than in the non-minority or African-American communities? Is the cultural factor a very major difference in the group that we're talking about? Just in our groups as well, but I think that historically we've always been told that we were immune to things such as depression, that we could, that uh, psychological issues are things that we can overcome just by our heritage. And often that there's been a uh, strong cultural distrust of specialized mental health treatment and of many and of medication. So what is then happening that's causing the rise? Are people beginning to realize that they're having depressions and they don't know where to seek treatment? You know, Sherry, can you tell us a little bit from your perspective, why the rise so much? Well, I think we're not really completely sure of the scientific reasons why there's been this increase. I think part of it is what Dr. Lawson said earlier. I think that you have a lot of young men and young women, but particularly young men who are under a lot of stress. I think that some of the protective factors that used to be in the community are not there as much as it used to be. And one of the things that we do know is that, for example, we, families used to be much more close-knit and also used to have a lot more social support in their immediate environment and community. And we know that just not just in this group but in other groups, too, that people are much more widespread now. But some of the advantages of technology, which are great in some ways, like the Internet, also leave people more socially isolated at times, and it's, it's a little more difficult to get access to your networks. I think that it used to be. I think that there's a concept called the social cohesion and the collective co- collectivism, which is basically the concept that it takes a village. And I think that we don't see that as quite as strong as it used to be in the African American community, in part because I think just socially, people just don't live in the same community anymore. The, the thing that I think Dr. Lawson and, and Don and I and Dr. Barnes and I have all talked about is how most of us grew up in neighborhoods where our immediate and extended family members were pretty close by, and we could lean on those people for support. And that's not as true anymore. A lot of times when people live next to each other, 
they don't know their neighbors, and particularly in some high-risk communities, people are much more transient, so people are more in and out, moving in and out of the neighborhood. And when you have that, you have the lack of stability in the community. It's a little bit harder, I think, to use those resources. And then I think what Dr. Larson said is true, too, that particularly young men are not really socialized to access those systems of social support as much as young women are. So if someone is in trouble and you need to treat them, is treatment applicable to their social problems? Are the therapists who are intervening aware of these protective factors or the lack of the protective factors that you just referred to? I think some are, and I think a lot aren't. I think mental health professionals in general are not trained to, not so much trained not to know about them, but are not necessarily trained to use those in treatment sessions. So, for example, we know that the religious community and the church community has been a really strong source of support for African Americans historically. On the other hand, therapists who use psychosocial mechanisms for treatment are often taught not to talk about the church or religious issues in the session, when in fact that could be a source of social support. I think that's one avenue that people are typically taught not to talk about, which to me is not necessarily a, a good thing because if that's a source, particularly if the church is a source of support, you want to use all the tools that you can to help people get help. Is there a, a sense, a different sense of shame in the black or African-American community than is thought to exist in the non-African-American community, the shame of having an illness? I think so. Both not only having an illness, but also in terms of the willingness to accept um, psychiatric treatment. The good news is that more and more folks are now willing to get help and to get treatment. I've had no problems in getting African-American patients at all, and that's been the experience of many, many of my colleagues. On the other hand, <clears throat> many times folks will go to primary care physicians, their ministers, and others even um, end up in the criminal justice system where treatment is not optimal in terms of addressing many of these kinds of problems. But the, um, but the, but the whole idea of not being manly, of saying that you have have a brain problem rather than um, that this is some sort of social force and it's still very prevalent. Many young people now aren't as aware of the Tuskegee case, still a whole belief system that underlies it and that is that the body of society is out to get you, that medication may be some sort of inappropriate experimentation, still very prevalent among many young people. I think another factor, too, though, is we do know that a lot of times in communities of color, people prefer to go to practitioners who are from the same racial ethnic background as the person who's the client exactly. or the patient. And so we really, really need to have many more people out here doing the work. And that part is, in some ways, I'm wondering if that's getting worse, because we do know that we have fewer and fewer people of color, at least in the African-American community, particularly young men who are even going to college and going on to advanced degrees in mental health professionals. And so that's a place that's really needs to be improved quite a bit to have people trained in this area as well. So there's a certain comfort in going to someone who at least appears or should have a sense of the cultural background and some similarity and familiarity with yeah, it. Yeah, there are certain things you don't you feel like that person kind of has walked your walk before or understands your story a little bit better. Certain cultural um, idioms that you don't have to necessarily explain to someone who's from the same background. There's a language that you can use that's sort of, and also shared history, I think, which is sometimes really important, particularly from communities where there's been a history of trauma or oppression. To have that shared history, I think, is somewhat comforting as well. And the, I think it really helps to drop down the levels of distrust that Dr. Lawson talked about earlier. 
It also gives us not only comfort, but it also legitimizes some of the concerns. Unfortunately, many practitioners who are not familiar with African-American culture um, often discount what we call uh, micro-insults that people often experience on a day-to-day basis, especially young black men. That's an interesting concept, micro-insults. Could you elaborate on that? We all kind of think we know what that means, but I think it's a very powerful psychiatric experience. Exactly, yeah. Chester Pierce actually coined the term uh, referring to the fact that many times folks, especially today, do not, are not exposed to overt racism, but many minor incidents that to them are quite traumatic, but to someone who's in a different culture, a different perspective, may see this as minor and uh, not significant. Going into a well-dressed man who's considered that he must be a janitor rather than a professional, the refusal of some folks to use professional names for African-Americans, the, um, the uh, assumption that if you're African-American, you, uh, you must be unemployed or poor, all things that many uh, young black men face on an ongoing basis, or even just walking into a neighborhood and being followed by a police car from uh, all the way through the visit. Yeah, there's a joke in the African-American community that you're pulled over by police more often. We would call it racial profiling, but people jokingly call it driving while black. And I have a son who's almost 18 years old, and I think in the year and a half that he's had his license, I think he's been pulled over six times. And so we've had, my husband had to teach him what to do when he's pulled over to make sure it's going to end up becoming much more serious than him being arrested. We've had to teach him things like keep the car registration visible at all times so that you don't have to reach into a glove compartment, making sure that you pull over, that you're polite. And those little insults, you know, start to wear and tear. And there's some research to suggest that it's actually the micro-insults that create more stress than sort of the major overt racist acts. Right, and the main and one reason that they create more stress is um, that they're le- not legitimized. Mm-hmm. I mean, overt racism, pretty much everybody recognizes what it is, but micro insults um, actually has caused the person to become even more um, isolated when they try to get some validation on the experience they have from people of other ethnic groups, and they often don't get it. It's interesting because those of us who have done psychotherapy or any sort of mental health intervention are all very aware of the notion of transference. The patient has to feel comfortable with the doctor and the system and and the like. And you're suggesting that that may not be as well worked out in in the therapist's perspective in in dealing with an African-American patient. I think the challenge that, and we we know deal with this in our training of doctoral students in the program at George Washington University, is students have to sort of own and think about what is the impact of working with someone who is culturally different from yourself as a therapist. And it's really on the the therapist to really bring that up sometimes and address that issue or at least ask the client about it. So you don't want to necessarily assume that it's going to be a problem. But on the other hand, we all know when you're trained to do therapy, you're supposed to be paying attention to the transference and things that could interfere with that. And one of the things that could interfere with that is when there's this cultural difference or cultural distrust and you and the client don't develop a therapeutic alliance. And I think that sometimes when you therapists who are being trained who are from the majority culture feel uncomfortable with that, that issue may not get addressed. And as we both know, that can end up with premature termination of treatment. And so you don't want to have that happen. So people have to look at that. One of the statistics that I read, and I don't have the exact number, I wish I could have found it, was that African-Americans are more likely to drop out of treatment than non-African-Americans. And I'm wondering if that is just because they don't have the money or the access to do it or what we're talking about now, this micro-insulting, these cultural subtle issues, that may be much more of a variable than meets the eye. That's what 
we found, and if you look at the literature, you also find is that it, this tendency to drop out, if you control, if you even look at strictly Medicaid populations or if you control for income, you still find that African Americans are much more likely. On the other hand, did a VA study in which they had African American, primary African American therapists. They found that African Americans were much more likely to be trained in treatment. And interestingly enough, that Caucasian patients were also more likely to be retained in treatment as well. Really? That's yeah. interesting. I think the other thing is because our program uses a lot more of the cognitive behavioral treatment approaches, and one of the things that we talk about that is the beauty of those programs is that they're often manualized, there's a set number of sessions, et cetera. On the other hand, culturally, people may not necessarily come to every session like 16 weeks in a row, and so the things that we always talk about when we try to adapt these programs, because people also of color also drop out of those treatments earlier, is that you know most people don't come to sessions 16 weeks in a row for 50 minutes at a time, <laughs> so it's sort of hard sometimes to even look at the outcome treatment outcome studies because people have missed sessions in between and so you really can't look at the fidelity of the treatment or whether or not people got the right quote-unquote dose of the treatment and I think those are things that we have to struggle with which is a cultural issue about how people seek help and how people perceive the help. Perception of course is reality and we've heard that phrase so many times what effect, if there is any, shall we say, known effect on the African-American community of the general media and the attitude towards mental health, who are these kids' models? Who are the models for folks in the African-American community? They tend to discount people to go out and seek mental health treatment. So um, often the heroes are presented as pretty much mentally dead, uh, unresponsive, uh, do not need um, support and nurturance. And the idea is that, uh, I guess, to, to emphasize that kids need to be, uh, can be strong and must be strong if they appeal to their masculinity. One of the things that always strikes me is that people think that if you're going to go into mental health treatment that you're automatically going to get a medication. That is not true. Many people don't need medications. They need counseling. I read that African-American women are much more likely to endorse counseling and prayer than African-American men. Do you see that as well? Oh, definitely. I think that uh, Dr. Lawson is one of my favorite referral sources for medication, so we joke about this, is that it takes a... Part of the issue, I think, is that African-Americans sometimes see medication use as a weakness or see it as a sign that I must be really, quote-unquote, crazy. So, And that's unfortunate because, particularly for certain disorders like bipolar disorder, and major depression, medication is a really important treatment tool that you can use. And in fact, when people are severely depressed, if you're not on medication, sometimes the psychosocial treatments don't work as well. Just because you're so fatigued, it's harder for you to focus and concentrate. Or if you're having wild mood swings, it's hard to benefit, maximally benefit from the psychosocial component of it. So part of the job really has to be to change these norms and these myths that we have about what it means to take medication. We also do know that, again, African-American women, because they're more likely to seek counseling and to seek help from a church community, that social support that they have, that men are not really socialized to have access to. Some, so some of my own research is trying to work with people on changing the norms in the community so that we, in a way, give people permission that it's okay to get treatment, that it doesn't mean you're quote-unquote crazy if you get medication, and that medication is an important tool in treatment, just as if, if you had cancer, you wouldn't forego chemotherapy or radiation if that's what you needed. Or if you have hypertension, you wouldn't stop taking antihypertensive medication. It's, it's, it's an important component of your treatment. In some of our cultures and some of our ethnic groups these days, going to a counselor is something that many people do, and so it is almost a social, a social talking point. It's something to bring to your friends. Apparently that's not so in the black community. No. 
especially among black men. And, but I also want to emphasize the limitations of medication because what we know is that many times medication work best when combined with psychotherapy. And several big studies recently have shown is that the response rate for the first dose of medication. First trial is very, very small, and the antidepressants primarily work in people with severe depression. There's very little evidence that medication does any better than talk therapy for milder depression, if at all. This creates another problem because if you try something, it doesn't work. And then the folks will say, well, maybe you're trying to experiment with me in some way. Right. And the thing that's, that's, that's frustrating for, I think, I'm sure for Dr. Lawson and myself is that there's really no way to know up front what medications work or don't work. So while it's not true that people are completely experimenting on, on you, it is true that sometimes it's trial and error. And it's also true that people, unfortunately, when they experience side effects, will stop medication prematurely. I know with my clients, one of the things we struggle with is if you're having side effects or having problems with the medication, don't just abruptly stop it and don't let us know. So sometimes you can go weeks and not realize someone's off their medication and you see their symptoms getting worse and you're inquiring what's going on and then you realize, oh, I haven't been on my medicine in four weeks. Well, in a way, when you do that, it's almost like we have to start from scratch again. You know, So it's better for you to work with your therapist and with your, your physician with your psychiatrist so that we're working as a team to figure out what's going to work best for you. Which brings up the question of access and who's paying for the therapy. And I know a very large number of people in minority groups have Medicaid as their primary insurance. And that many of the people who are on Medicaid get more medication management than real psychotherapy. So this, this is a big problem. It certainly is. Most psychiatrists in the District of Columbia do not accept Medicaid. So that means that if they want to get treatment, they may have to go to a primary care physician where you almost ex- will get almost exclusively medication. Right. Yeah, this is, for myself, and I'm sure a lot of mental health professionals, this is extremely frustrating because there are so few psychiatrists of color in the community that people like Dr. Lawson are inundated. They often sometimes have long waiting lists. And not all primary care physicians are necessarily trained or haven't done training since they were in school with what medications to work and when to use them and when to, to refer on. The other issue is that our services are not centralized. Sometimes primary care physicians may not refer you for psychosocial treatment because they don't know of mental health professionals who are out there in the community. So you have people who are getting medication alone without getting the other specialized mental health treatment. So that part is, for me, is kind of scary. I think that, again, it really needs to be a team approach, and people need to get to sort of maximally benefit from all types of forms of treatments that we know can be helpful to people. And the key is that there is treatment, and it can Mm -hmm. be helpful, and we just have to get it to people and change their attitudes and remove some of the stigmas Mm -hmm. and listen to folks like you and study what you're doing so we can help a lot of people have a little bit better life, which is really what we want to do. Donna Barnes is the director of the National Organization of People of Color Against Suicide. Dr. Sherry Malik is a psychologist from George Washington University, and Dr. Bill Lawson is the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Howard University. We've been talking about the precipitous rise of suicides amongst African Americans, and that led to a very interesting discussion of a multitude of other problems that interfere with the delivery of good health to these people. I thank you all for being with us. Thank you. Have a thank good you night. very much. You're more thank than you welcome. for having us again. It is my pleasure.